25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Requiem for Rome. Hey everybody, that was the Imperial entrance, of course, for uh, for us, the, the, gladiator, the gladiators of 25 years here. I can't even say that word right the first time. I will certainly be put to the sword, as they say, um, in arena combat. But before that, I'm accompanied by two of my fellow gladiators here to discuss today's events. That, of course, being Brennan. Hi, everyone. That's maybe Brennicus very... Maximus, I should have yeah, said. You're, you're goddamn right. <laughs> I'm very chipper gladiator. Right in little boots. There you go. Hey. And Aurelius Timelicus Dejakis. How are you, DJ? Ah! I'm here. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I like that. That's a little better. It's capturing that energy. And uh, he has special ways of doing that, folks. But anyway, um, glory to everyone as we now are going to embark here, as we said, into the rest of Rome. And we're definitely going to do this in a unique fashion. I know a lot of you uh, like to follow along and listen to us step by step. This is chapter one. All the cool stuff in chapter one. This is every minutia and detail they put in the book that you might have overlooked. And that'd be great. But I got to tell you, this book is one of those you cannot do that to in two hours. Mm-hmm. We, we would be here for a solid month. And that's not even four podcasts I'm talking. I mean a month. I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give you an idea. Two pages of this book. I was in three hours of research. Just lost. And the awesome that's in it. The perfect blend of history meets Requiem, right? Just lore is so strong in this book. And it's done so well. You just can't shortchange it. You can't. And we're not going to try. And we're going to tell you why. There's a powerful storytelling section of what we think you are actually here to listen to. And that is, how do we run a Roman game? This book is forever a sleeper on shelves worldwide, and I know it is, because of the intimidation of Rome. You gotta learn history. We gotta get a history book. We gotta know what it's like to be emperor. Oh, let's talk about emperors, huh? Let's look them up, and oh, Caligula was so bad. He was so <laughs> wicked and so terrible guy. You know, um, let's not get into others. I mean, you could, like... <laughs> Let's just say when you look up Roman uh, emperors in their heyday in ancient Rome, you begin to go, well, this is why power corrupts absolutely. And Mm -hmm. without missing a beat, but we're not going to go there. Instead, we're going to pertain this to Kendra. We're going to keep it on a level. We're going to talk about some of the cool points to get over the major conflict that is in this book uh, for the story there. And right after that, we're going to get into some themes. And by then, it should be a a hell of a stretch. Trust me, it's going to take a minute. Uh, but uh, to dive right in, um, Brunchon, there's an interesting story they start off the bat about the founding of Rome. And of course, this is the mythological story of uh, Romulus and Remus. The founding of Rome is attributed to uh, the, these twins, Romulus and Remus. Uh, and in the in the legend of their of the founding, uh, it doesn't start with them like placing bricks for a city. It starts back with their birth. Their mother was a um, I believe she was a Vestal Virgin, uh, which is a uh, she was a priestess. Um, who at the time was supposed to have, well, remained uh, pure as they viewed it back then. However, she uh, she wasn't. She became pregnant. And rather than having her children killed, um, they were they were taken out to the city. Go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was just going to help out a little bit there. Um, only to say, you're, you're right for the most part, right? That's what that's the, because that's the meat mm-hmm. of what people remember about that, the two children being taken out, and we'll finish that. But we have to add a key point here. Uh, Amelius is the king of the Latins, right? That mm-hmm. he steals his throne from his brother, uh, Numenor, right? Which is, uh, it's it's important only because it's they're from, it tells the tale of Rome in this mythological story that it's from upheaval. Off the bat, they've known in their DNA what it is to come from conflict, right? That there, there's no peace here. It's from a brother mm-hmm. killing another brother and stealing his power, and that's what his uncle, their uncle and their dad did. You know, without... Or sorry, I can't even say dad. What their two uncles did. They're from those genes, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you're the... Rhea Silvia, their mother, is pure at this point, and when Armelius takes over, he's the king, he imprisons her. He says she stays there, now I'm all good. I ain't got to worry about descendants, none of that. And we're, we're good to go. However, she's just raped by a god named Mars. Mm-hmm. Now, why that's significant is because Mars has a specific bird, and it'll become relevant later on too, uh, that's assigned to him. There's some avian fear that exists in Roman mythology. And, and mm-hmm. this one, I believe it's vultures uh, that he has. And that's the only point I want to make up to this point please take it away because the twins remember the king says you can't have kids she's pregnant she somehow gets pregnant in prison because she's in prison mars rapes her out comes Mm -hmm. twins and what happens then so these children uh they were born but uh the you know she Rhea silvia was imprisoned specifically to prevent this issue so he hasn't killed or not at least sentenced to die to execute this there was a there was a man whose job it was to take care of it Right. And this man is, uh, well, he's a human being, right? He, in, in that he is given these two children, he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to kill them. Oh my God, that's ridiculous. I will leave them out here to, to, for the forest to take them. That's maybe a little bit more humane. At least I don't have to do it. Okay, we're going to pause there too, because here's something else I want to point out. Think of that right there for a second. In their own mythology, they don't try to put him in the best light. They don't give this guy a conscience right they don't you more or less nail it on the head he's like oh you want me to take these kids out and drown them i'm not gonna drown them there's not even loyalty to the king that mm-hmm. told him right because it's the king who said you take them out and drown these kids right now and be done with it wash your, wash your hands of it and that's it and he's like mm, what's the next best thing i'm gonna put them over here and we'll see what happens now why he did that instead is because the concept you have to you have to know here of the religions of rome is that when you were ruled by gods you, they, they don't have morality in the sense of a personal morality. Like, they indeed know of a right and wrong, but they relate it to that their deeds and actions will be judged by the gods and the fates, mm-hmm. right? When you live that way, well, let's look at it this way. If I do something that is, uh, Brennan and DJ, let's say for a second that uh, whatever mm-hmm. I do, I'm a mercenary. I work for both of you, right? And both of you have your level of luxury and decadence, but at the same time, I also know that there's things I want to do. Well, you may not be happy with the things I do. And so when you hear I go and do X, you're like, well, I'm going to cut his pay. He's not going to get that anymore. And I'm like, oh, man, that sucks. Is there a way to appease Brennan? I know he's mad, but I could do that. But then DJ's like, why appease him at all? I'm right over here. I got you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, good point. And I walk over there. Hey, DJ, it's great. And Brennan goes, you know, it's time for that festival you like again, Bob. Do you certain you want to write me out of this entirely? I'm like, wow, well, you know, what do you want me to do? Kill your daughter. Or whatever it is. 
that I feel I have to do to appease Brennan, depending on what he's the god of. And they kind of go back and forth like that, right? Every There's like a god for everything and tons of prayers, chalk filled with prayers they could do for apology and everything else that come, that come out there, come up ins and kind of cleansing, right? This concept though, that we can cleanse to forgive our sins, that is nowhere here. This mm-hmm. is just simply, at the end, hopefully I've balanced the checkbook enough to where when I go to wherever the gods claim me, I'm not tortured forever. I haven't pissed a god off and they'll, they'll see mm-hmm. kindly on me and my descendants. It's important because that's why this guy goes, you know, drown them. Mm, <clears throat> I got a strong feeling about this. It said Mars raped her. So technically I'm drowning the kids of Mars. Yeah, not going to do that. I'm going to leave them here in the woods. You raise them. And he walks off, right? Points to the sky, says you raise them. Whoever does whatever is whatever. And what happens after that? So as he leaves them in the forest, um, <clears throat> and perhaps what's in a turn of divine providence, uh, a she-wolf finds them. However, it doesn't think, oh, man, I got dinner tonight. This is a she-wolf that's recently lost her cubs, lost her cubs to hunters specifically. And rather than killing them or even ignoring them, though, a she-wolf takes them in and raises her as their own. And from this point forward, this is a... Uh, facet that will always remain in like Roman history and mythology. There are several depictions of children. There's a famous statue actually on display in Rome of uh, the two children of Romulus and Remus suckling on the she-wolf. Um, but they don't they don't stay with her forever. Years pass. A farmer finds her uh, with the children, and she stands back placidly as the farmer takes them, as the legend goes. Uh, and in another uh, turn of divine providence, the farmer guesses their identity. You know, two babies left out in the woods. How many babies, twins could be left? Uh, it's not really a hard guess, guys. <laughs> so, and, and what really? does he take him in for? Right? What does he take him in for? Why do you think? Right? He, he knows who they are. When they come of age, he tells them, hey, look, this is what happened. This is your mama. This is your uncle who killed your granddad. And uh, they do uh, the, the very Roman thing. Uh, they later revolt to take their birthright back. Well, listen, and on- but this farmer is innocent. That's, that's, that's the point in which he's right. But he's not an innocent dude. This guy took these kids in because he went, what are the odds? There's a wolf, two thing. The wolf just backs up. What would you do? If you came to the uh, woods and there were two babies suckling at the teat of a wolf, and when the wolf sees you, it kind of half bows its head, staring at you, and just fades uh, in the back. I think the I think the wolf god is telling me I have two kids. This is my. I think that's what they're telling me. What do you think, DJ? <laughs> I was about to say, uh, you're right. In olden times, I would have to assume that's exactly what ended up happening. It's like Joseph finding out Mary was pregnant too. See how the mythology stories go? They put a god in front of you. You can't say no. <laughs> but. Let's look at this from another perspective. When it's a mythological tale, what's the real point here? Which we can't lose. It's not just a story. There's a point to the story. So we got kids who were birthed. They come from war, right? And Mm -hmm. they can't escape it. And it's Mars who specifically creates these kids. And they're, they're, I don't want to say spewed out. That's not childbirth. But they're birthed in the world. But they're weaned on the the milk of, of wolves, wild creatures right just to instill the strength because as the farmer said he looked and said like brennan you just said i know who you are y'all some you gonna be badasses right all reagan look at you could tell you gonna throw down and be good and whatever you're gonna do you're gonna do and i'm gonna be here to see it and that's what happens but 
they do it quickly. They're like, they are famed and grow stronger than normal men and then lead a revolt to kill the tyrant king. To mm-hmm. anybody else, this is a film you watch played by, uh, what's his face? Oh, Aquaman, right? Jason Momoa. Right, Jason Momoa and The Rock would tag team in this film as Remus and Romulus and would run up and kill the tyrant. And then, like, Disney would make a million bucks or whatever the hell on it just for having them in the movie. And that's what it would be, but it would end on a good note, right? That would end the film right there. The tyrant king's dead, they free their mother, Mars gives a thumbs up, and that's and that's how the story ends, right, Brennan? No, not at all. Oh, not at all. all right. So, all right. uh, from that point, you know, the, the kids have their kingdom back. Right. And on these these famous seven uh, Latin hills, they begin founding their city. And uh, the brothers at a, at times, um, it's not one becomes a king at first. Right. They they take turns as any good sibling does. Right. And while, when Remus takes his, he sees an auspicious sign. Those vultures we were talking about before. Well, up in the sky, he sees six of them. Obviously, it's a sign of favor from his father. However, when Romulus is term comes around oh he sees 12 oh no he sees more and because of this more people start siding with his brother over remus and as the city is building and these foundation blocks are being laid remus uh well he he gets a little jealous i'll say he starts uh almost mocking his brother and his creations and this this sibling rivalry that starts spewing there how do you say almost He's acting a clown. He acting yeah, a fool. Okay, I, to say what I was thinking, he's acting really shitty about the entire situation. He's like, "Screw you, Romulus. I'm the better king. Your stuff sucks." And like he like walks over to a sandcastle and kicks it down. Only it's not a sandcastle, right? It's like an actual. Sit- but you get the idea. It, it's a better visual for the attitude. <laughs> DJ, if I dug if I dug a trench for you all damn day, and it's over two, it's like a mile plus because we're using men, and I'm leading in. We're busting in the sun. We got break rock and move rock out and we're trying to build fortifications to help the city and all that rocks up behind you and they have it barely tied off because we don't know no better yet and earthworks but we're getting there because we're the original founders of earthworks and we're doing it right now what the hell would you do to the guy that walked over and started clipping the rope and kicking everything in in a tantrum some bitch gotta die he he gots to not maybe he has to right you know, and it's like, as you tell this story, I was like, another Cain and Abel all over again? Well, man, how many times yes. can civilization, humanity tell the exact same story, but we doing it this time around with wolves and Mars and vultures this time? It's interesting how this stacks up, right? He gets, right. He gets everything, right? Because Cain murders and gets the city. Well, Remus murders, or excuse me, Romulus murders Remus, right? We know that, but it, the, the story doesn't end there. Right, but before we skip to what what happens with Remus, keep that footnote. I'm curious about one thing, Brennan. Do you you understand what an augury is, right? An augury, yeah. It uh, I forget what it what it stands for is uh, it's someone that can divine uh, either like the future or things by birds, by their flight patterns or their behavior. That's what it uh, calls back to. And this is, uh, well, what we were talking about before with the 6 and 12 vultures, that was, uh, in, at least in this book, the first instance of it. But this is a recurring thing throughout all of Rome from this point forward. If you ever w- wake up and you see something like a double rainbow and think that's amazing. <laughs> oh my god! Right? Someone saw a double rainbow and went, wow, that has to mean something, right? Or a falling star at the right mm-hmm. time at night. 
Or if you did see a flock of birds at an odd time and didn't hear a gunshot or anything else to explain it. All sorts of things. If you if you happen to look at the clock and you recognize a pattern and it's 11-11 every time you look at the clock, what could that mean? Well, there's a person that existed back in the day called an auger, and that's what they did. They interpreted what this stuff could be. Natural phenomenon, right? Typically, you're right. It is going to be animal behavior, but natural phenomenon are just as good. The mm-hmm. importance of it is, is you got to remember the time, folks. When you're thinking back in the day, like even the joke about that comment, white nonsense, and we're knocking it out, we're leaving it in, is because the comment is a product of the times, of the modern. That's not even a thought back then. Like, you want to talk about um, a social issue that was a non-thing? They had slavery in Rome. They didn't need to have anything else added to it. That was based on everybody was part of that, right? And that's how it went, too, because it was a definite, it's darker and more decadent. And when you have that mix, nobody is spared uh, from, from any of it, right? And, and this is an example of why you get there. Because there's some wild assumptions made when you, when you think about the irony, right? Romans versus the Greeks, we're just going to add that there. All they took from them, the Romans did, and made their own. It's strange how the logic didn't apply to everybody. And it's strange how they didn't apply the logic to necessarily religion. Now, in the depictions of movies and literature we have, or, you know, fiction anyway, we apply our logic to what they had, but you keep finding what poets write that we discover and what's left behind, actions taken in war, and you hear about all these auguries, all this, uh, the, the vestial virgin and things like mm-hmm. that. It's like, well, not everybody, man. And, and, and the majority, I'd argue, um, felt some type of way. How else could you have an emperor ruling with absolute power at a point? Like, can you imagine the world today, there being nominated an emperor of the known world, and that actually sticking? What? That's, a, that's a foreign concept to us today, right? Because, well, we know, uh, for, for myriad reasons, right? But to, to get to, to your point, yeah, that's that's something that is so foreign to us now that that's, it's hard to even really consider that one person would be a ruler owner of everything we know but i'm gonna blow your mind right now and everybody listening you know what an auger is called today a news reporter close i was about to say meteorologist but i like yours better (laughs) it's it's the same difference it's the news it's somebody going oh did you see what's in the sky today and then their goal is to take the masses opinion and pepper it with what their headline is going to be Factual or not, they're going to pepper. They want to color it a certain way to keep you invested in where you heard it here first, folks. How many times have you heard that? That's true. Mm-hmm. Right, and tomorrow I'll see a retraction on the story, but that's not on the front page. It's buried down like somewhere. Nobody but cares yeah, I... about the retraction. They care about the first <laughs> deep cut, right? That gets you yeah. involved. It's interesting, right? Because to me, it, it, to me it, I don't know why. They, to me, you look at the auger and you look at what they did and it's the same shtick. They're convincing someone, uh, look what I've seen, my lord. And now you kind of get the news comes across that way as well. I'm just pointing out similarities, but please, I apologize. Mm-hmm. The thing I couldn't figure out, well, I won't say I couldn't, but I'm curious what you thought of it. It's a mythological tale talking about Remus seeing six vultures and Romulus seeing twelve why even numbers? Why six and twelve? Because twelve is twice as many as six. Obviously, Romulus was twice as good as Remus. It's, it's that's, an, that's all I got. It's an astounding number, right? I could reach that conclusion, and you could say that he just had more. What about you, DJ? What do you think? 
I would have also a said the same, and I'm sure there's a numerological reason. Unfortunately, I just don't know it yet, but there usually is a significance in numbers. You're going to think I looked this up and I didn't on purpose. I want everybody to hear. I don't necessarily look everything up because I think this is fun, right? My guess is it relates to Mars directly if I had to stretch to do it, right? Because mm. this is all about Mars. It's all about the God of War. It's all about seeding what the God of War wants, which is conquest, war. That This is, this is what it does. And because of it, I'm thinking to myself, six vultures, but we give that to Remus. Well, that's all right, but Romulus got 12. Why do we give Romulus 12? Well, because we want to instill jealousy. We want to instill a sense of uh, pride, right? Jealousy in Remus, pride in Romulus. Um, look how much plenty Romulus has, and clearly the favor of the gods where mm -hmm. Remus does not. But we need Remus to act out from his jealousy. It's not going to be good enough if he's not humiliated on top of being driven to being jealous. And we need him to express this detail because when diplomacy fails... There's only one recursion, except not here, right? Nobody no. can predict that Romulus would have done what he did to Remus. And so when it was done and he was laid low, there's, there's mixed stories in what happened to him, right? One, in my favorite version, is that Romulus struck him down in one blow and walked away, leaving him for Mars's own vultures. Take back that which you birthed here, which is the inferior to me. And he didn't have to, he didn't have to say it. His deed of walking away allowed the god himself to, to cho chose a successor who was to inherit that future of what that god wanted, which was Mars. However, in an interesting version, in another one, Remus was simply buried. He had a light burial over there on the side. <laughs> right? We just kind of put him over there now. You know, and probably as a dig to him, they made him part of the fortification. You know what I mean? Like, you want to you kick it in? Jump over this wall, Remus. <laughs> right. And that's important because he, he didn't just kick it in. He jumped over the wall showing he could bypass mm -hmm. the fortification, which was seen as inauspicious, i.e. he was bringing a curse for, for Rome to be uh, conquered, for, for them to break into the walls, cities vulnerable and whatever. That's when Remus struck him, or <laughs> Romulus struck Remus down. All interesting. Definitely kind of telling the tale between the two brothers, right? But they don't ever focus on their life. Now, I want to point this out, too. They were twins raised by wolves. They had an interesting upbringing with the farmer. It couldn't have been a bad life because they talk about how they were famous and everybody liked them and they were growing stronger. And these both had attributes of the strength and charisma, no doubt, that they both must have exuded. Enough to where people rallied behind them and then were with them at the great debate of where to place the city on the seven hills. Where were they going to build it? And that's why they did the, the, the readings, right? Pretty cool. The relation, though, between Cain and Abel. You're given very little about the relationship between Cain and Abel. They, they tell you they loved each other, but what brothers who are twins or near twins don't love each other? Especially mm -hmm. when they're younger. You're raised to do that. We're kin, we're blood, we're here, I look out for you, or we're the same age, or whatever it is. And twins especially have a bond. That's the other mm -hmm. thing that makes this weird. If their bond is so strong, how it... Wow, it's weird that they're just going to be that, you know, opposite of the coin, it seems. And that's okay, too. I'm not saying every twin in history's got along. But enough on that, because we know Romulus goes on to raise Rome. Right? Pretty nice. We know Roman history from here. Normal there. If not, www.letmegoogleatforyou.com, and you can look mm -hmm. at Rome and how it fans out. We're going to leave that there, but we're going to stick to this Requiem book, and 
there immediately tells you a tale about the uh, the fragments from Emorchuo Rimo, which is the the author of this book is Marcellaris Corpulo, which is a very important character we'll get to later on in Requiem, uh, definitely from ancient Rome, and puts a smile on my face every time. And uh, if the name Marcellaris uh, rings a bell to you, it should, and, and I'm glad it does. We are of the same bloodline then, and uh, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> but uh, that's that's all right. But the the point I want to drive to is that, oh, by the way, he is a Julii. I'll point that out just because I'm going to hear you say, hey, wait a minute, Bob. No, 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 it's okay. It's Requiem. We can all be a thing and then a thing. So just, all right. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. I digress. Save me, DJ, from myself. Don't let me talk about everything. What is You're this good. De Mortuo Remo? The Mortuo Remo actually happens to be a declaration that was actually being set out there. One of the things about it that means the most out of the situation is essentially taking a look at it. Um, it is the founding of the Julii clan, or what they assume to be the Julii clan as that's currently written as itself. Um, it is the beginning of many things. Uh, the way they kind of write it is as almost as a poem, a tale of sorts. It goes over the story about how Remus's blood is being spilt, um, what is currently happening in the background in terms of how his blood comes back up now the, the part about this is i shall read it because it'll be two parts of it one being it says none dare defy the other twins and see the younger lies skull cracked open his half his face half destroyed his lifeblood spilled in a soaking stain half within and half without these yet to be built walls no brute beast come to feed on remus the moon rises he stirs a little dying unknown and not yet without breath he cannot cry out all for ill-flated Remus is soon to open one eye and see the moon. He sighs, and an inauspicious shadow descends. It has a shape of an owl, a man's voice. Son of Mars, I have come to bargain, it says. For the issue of Romulus are fated to rule over all, and to endure for a thousand years this I know. I offer your line equal posterity and more. If only you will agree to pay due respect to my own family when the right time comes. Remus blinks ascent, and the owl seems to grow and obscure the shadow pale moon. He rises to a feet, come sunrise, none remark on the absent remains. The great-hearted Romulus sleeps, is vexed the night with visions of the inauspicious twin. Now, in terms of how it's presented, while it sounds great, it always is going to break down to the following thing. Remus, in this case, is noted to be the first kindred of himself. It's almost a creation story, but specifically for the Julii I was being mentioned. Um, To kind of break it down a little bit more, the way it kind of also reads down is the first introduction of the owl itself, the Strix. This is very important because this is one of the leading... There's always a boogeyman that's kind of written in there, right? And this is almost like... uh, You know how Kronos gave birth to the gods? Here you have Strix kind of showing itself, this thing that is not a vulture. This aviary creature that we were speaking about before that is tied to the gods at one point or another, and yet it's not tied to anything just yet, except to Remus. And what's more important about it is because there's a duality of it, once again, reflecting the way that Rome kind of shows up, there's the living and then there's the dead. Romulus may, of course, rule over the living, but now Remus's bloodline shows the duality of there being the dead. And this is the importance of the Morcho. Now, when we look at this story, it's one thing I want to add to you. We must remember, the Julii is a new clan that's mm-hmm. here, and Corpulo is, of course, of the Julii. Now, what he wrote was an, an epilon, right? Which is, in and of itself, a uh, 
a rather interesting bit of poetry that is... You know, if somebody was really wanting to showcase how much smarter they are and better than you and more epic than you and that they could write so much better, they might do an Apillion, right? They might write that way. They don't have to write that way, but they're trying to sound a certain way, right? They're trying to put a little pinage to the tail, but be short enough to where it's kind of massaging you a bit, right? It's kind of bringing you into their circle of fancy. They want you to be hip to what they are about or what what they want to project to you. That's kind of what that is. And, um, you know, that's not the actual definition, but we're not going to call this school just yet because I enjoy this. I want you to keep that because you got to remember what the Julii are is someone that would write an Apillion. For instance, when you think of it a certain description, I want you to think of Corpulo as this. Is that his face could be kind if there were any trace of human kindness in it. He is generous and gregarious, but these traits do not balance his gluttony or his wrath. This is not a man, but a monument to man's excess. And when he smiles, he is terrible to behold. Now that description is actually the beginning of the uh, introduction to the Julii. That's their quote. But when you look at the image of Corpulo, when you look that up, and those of you who are going to quickly look it up at your computer, you're going to see him. Right? He's out of the Fall of Rome book, if you don't know that, but I had to see his imagery because I remember him being this. This is what this is what hooked me on Vampire when I saw it, like re-got me, was the fact that an entity so full of itself, but you can't contend with its power. Its immortality is absolute. It's unapologetic in its wealth and riches, and because it is wealth and rich, it can provide so much for so many that people are willing to gamble with their very lives to be caught in a city where this being rules with impunity and walks with others of its kind. That if you could be guaranteed safety and plenty and, and whatnot, these simple things serve to be all that one needs to keep slaves slaves. And he's willing you know, to do that. I was about to say his image also kind of evokes the same type of feeling that one sees from like an effigy of a fertility goddess where all the right angles are like swollen, right? Swollen breasts, swollen hips for, for purposes of giving that. And when you take a look at the image of Corpulo, he has that same feeling, but in the opposite direction. Kind of like when you see a nice fat statue of Buddha sitting down there, you know his belly good because my man be eating, which means that he's got plenty to provide and or he's got plenty coming his way. And you're right, that image does, he's a walking effigy in that particular fashion. But what would happen if a follower of Buddha saw Buddha smile and not the statue? And when he did, it was oh. serrated teeth? bits of flesh stuck in between and blood that kind of just poured out in between the cracks and he gave a wink right to understand that peace and harmony comes at a duality at a yin and a yang that a balance must be maintained and that where there is virtue so pure there must be an opposite that walks and and they're of the same harmony to have both exist right that's what i'm talking about this works right in this entity is a beautiful job having them there uh but the Importance of the epilon is the fact that this is also like love letters. If Bezos and uh, what is it, Tesla owner, what's what's his face? Um, Elon Musk. If Bezos, Bezos and Elon Musk decided to treat the world and into a riff contest through Twitter, where all they were going to do is do feeds. Uh, what did you buy today? I think I just bought the entirety of France, um, but I sold it immediately. 
I only <laughs> did it to take care of some of their national debt, and then I threw it away. And why I did that is because I don't have to pay rent in my house ever again. By the way, my house in France encompasses an entire city block, and it's downtown. I like the view of the Eiffel Tower when I'm having sex, right? And then immediately the other one has to be more decadent. You can't outdo me. And he's going to say something else outlandish on Twitter. By the way, even if they're lies, the whole world would believe them. Right? They have the money to do such things. And because they do, what do you do but sit in awe, you plebs? You poor. You nothing. You went to work today for eight hours. What you call work is not even worth my time. If my name is Corpulo, right? Look at what I have. I pay people to go to work and tell me what other people who actually work in my minds do. Right? I want to know how hard it was. You went there all day today cracking a whip. Was it really hard? It was. Did, did you work up a sweat with the whip? Yeah, that's, that's why I don't do it. I'll continue to pay you to do so. <laughs> right? It's a villainous sumbitch, right? That's, that's what we got going on. And th- this is the type of thing. And so he would send this out to other Julii who would actually revere this writing. And they would gauge it. And they would look at it. And they would say, well, we're of the Propinki. And I see this. We are course of Roman stock and... Oh, yes, our origins, they are indeed this. We come from divine intervention, after all. It was wise Remus who made the decision to create us. Of course, it's here. There it is. Never mind the fact he was killed to do it, but look what happens. Romulus got to rule up up top, and Rome prospered because we were below, as it ever shall be. It's It's a timeless shared arrogance they all get to do, and it promotes this. Not everyone feels this in Rome, which is the point. And but this this book is filled with this guy's writings, right? When you pay attention, if there's quotes from him, there's things he does. It's it's an epic character. I could go on, but uh, let's let's progress this forward a little bit and understand another key point. But you I have a question you- to that, though, if I can, because yeah, this please. is you know, especially when it comes to the Julii, and we want to give flavor to Rome, right? When we're talking about this book, and this is a key center. Once again, this isn't like Dark Ages uh, and you know Masquerade, where there's clans that just come together over a region. What's more important, and I think we haven't seen this in Requiem yet, is a single clan, an established bloodline that became a clan that's centralized over Rome, gets to set a pace for other vampires that may have existed before or after it, right? So imagine this, we're talking about Rome, but imagine Gangrel, the the, the Mechet, the, you know, the, the Deva and other such clans that have existed. And there's nothing mentioned about what if they existed prior to Rome, but the fact that the Julii have such power, right? To, to exist now at, at this moment in time and have this type of backing. Why do you think, right? Either yourself or Brendan, like, why do you think they had this much weight at this moment in time from what we're reading right now before even getting to the Camarilla. I got this. Easily. It's called SPQR. It's called the Roman Legion. Mm. Right? The back of Rome is the conquest of its legionnaires. The perfect soldier. They are literally in existence to conquer and enslave and rip apart. That's what they do in the name of Rome. It's Senate dictates this. Its Senate supports this. Its rich comes from the Senate. Their largesse is that. Their empire is everything. 
and their glory. Oh, how they love glory. Stop me when this doesn't sound like a certain nation we're all from. And that's, I mean, the three of us. Like, worldwide we're listened to, but let me tell you, America loves them some patriotism as well. Think of America's founding. They came from what? Nothing. Like, they, they came from people who didn't want to pay taxes that came over and fought insurmountable odds. They conquered the people who were here, right? Defeated and destroyed and didn't care how they did it. They got it done in the name of their God, right? Gods. I add that in parentheses because one could say greed and gluttony was part of that whole Christianity appeal that they brought over that thankfully they get away from later on in their descendants. But the point is, war is what they brought over here, pioneering. And that's what they took over. They conquested. And there's a pride when the little guy can't get defeated. When the might of Britain comes over to do what they do and give it up because they can't do what they wanted to do. They have to fight every square inch and it wasn't worth it. You begin to understand it. And why I use that history to tell you is because it's misguided. You believe it was all glory and there was no pain and no bloodshed to earn what you have, you're deluded. However, what Rome did best that America cannot do is because Rome does not have a conscience. It does not weigh them down. When they say they went and destroyed Carthage, it's Carthago delendo est. As Cato has said, it must be destroyed. Now why, you might ask? Because... Carthage first beat Rome on the open battlefield. They humiliated Rome, and Rome never outlived it. Now, why would Rome have to wage a war like the two other wars after this decided when it could have been just you're over here across the sea and we're over here? It's no big deal, Rome. Relax. We're basically the same nations kind of doing their thing because Rome cannot have a rival. You cannot be the rulers of the known world and stand against my might. If I am Rome, you must earn the right to stand up and call you my equal. And by the way, everyone who has said they're my equal so far serves me a drink tonight and warms my bed after at my behest. And if I don't like what they do, I'll see them in the arena entertaining the emperor tomorrow. That's Rome. And they believe because they defeat you, they can do such that you allowed yourself to be defeated. You allowed yourself the shame of living when you could have died with purity and honor on our sword. Think of that mentality. You're a soldier in Rome marching, understanding one thing. The eagle is all. Who you serve is all. That eagle represents all of Rome in totality. Wherever you go, you are the, the pride of your people in the heart of them. And when you return home, you don't return home to be pooped on. You return home with all due a plum, as you're told, right? The soldiers stand leagues above the common man. And that's just how it is, because the soldiers keep everything afloat, which means we got to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. This is pivotal in history. So when you ask that question, it's a loaded one. Because how do you not have pride? When you have so much wealth coming in, you don't know how to spend it. There's just not an understanding of how to get rid of it all. And there's many people who learn economics at this point and trade that opens up. And when you have your biggest commodity that's earning money is actual slavery of people, this is why you have it. But it's also because one thing they did, when they went and conquested, they didn't just destroy everything. They made it a part of who they are. Especially if it be logic, reason, terms, uh, gods, uh, ways, styles of writing, poetry, ways of debate. They added to uh, their culture and intellect would bring others into it. It was possible to earn your way up into Rome. When you do that, 
You tell everybody else, glory can be yours if you seize it. It's out there. That glory is yours. You can sit here and no one will ever remember your name, or you can go out there and come back a god. How do you choose to live, Brennan? What? How do you choose to live? If you were told that, what are you going to do? You're going to tell me what? That's that's one hell of a pep topic. It's not one I can turn down. Right. Uh, which direction is it? <laughs> and that's the point. Who can turn that down? And right. you wonder how they do it. It's exactly what I just did. You focus on their achievements, but you understand it's a hypocrisy. Just because you can crush the little guy and enslave them doesn't make you a hero. It makes you a piece of shit. Is mm -hmm. what it does. But if you do that enough and you take over enough land and those people are alive still in slavery as it is, maybe there's a hope one day. We don't know. But then you do it to another people. But maybe those people had more to offer or more to pay or however it is. Or however you choose to use them, rinse and repeat. I'll let you handle the detail. But that feeling of liking Rome, why they're so popular is because of the audacity of these. You can't believe this stuff was done. We're just not born. We're not cut from the moral fiber they lacked. It's just not there. And so when you think of that and you look at this, the only thought in your head is, how the hell are we going to possibly role play these people? Like, when you think of the fact that your only problem with another nation is that, well, they defeated us in the field of battle while we were en route to conquer Sicily. What's that again? Yeah, we were going to conquer someone. And we were opposed by someone else who might have been over there to conquer them as well. We don't really know. But we wanted them, and they stopped us, and they pushed us back. Now we're sour grapes. We're going to teach them a lesson. Rue the day. It's competition of conquests, and conquests suck. That's why we really don't do it anymore. At least, not at... I can't believe I said that. I, I have opinions on that. But let's just say I don't... It's not <laughs> as openly done as it once was. I can say that. And that's, uh, that's kind of how it is. I hope that answers your question. That does, because that kind of leads us into what happens next regarding the Julii and even the founding of the Camarilla, right? Why Why is, now that you mentioned it, you did exactly what we're looking at, and especially why the Julii are so strong. It's an analogy how strongly the Julii are tied to Rome. And it's funny that it's tied to Remus and not Romulus in this case. Why? Or is it as just a mirror, a parallel at that time? That's the curious part about it, but that's what makes this book so crazy because you're taking a look at it and how great must this, the, the Julii have been that as Rome grows, so do they. And as their power grows, it's 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 one of the coolest things in the book that I have to mention because I don't think I've ever seen it in any other book that every other book that we've mentioned, especially when it comes to vampires, you never really talk about what influence a vampire really had in a city because we always shrug it off and give it to humanity. But in this case, it's almost as if the life's blood of the Julii is... Rome itself. And where that's true, I, I would like to also point out that Julii stand in a very bloodied... Well, we, we, know, we know what Corpulo says occurred with Remus, right? We know what he talks about there. But it's interesting that the same word for owl and vampire is strix mm -hmm. amongst the Romans, right. and it's a cursed word, right? That's, right. that's pretty, pretty cool, in my opinion. And Owls are also what must, uh, they're literally an animal that are an energy of death, an entity of death, is what it's seen. Mm -hmm. They're inauspicious. They're bad birds to have around. And it's strange that they're here for this. And we really don't understand the depth of why was Remus chose 
chose, excuse me, chosen while he was out there. He's down there dying, he's doing this, whatever, and all of a sudden this thing shows up. That's what I'm curious about. And I know, Brennan, you love talking about uh, the Stridges here so much, but now I'm uh-huh. curious, why do you think, I have an opinion, but I remembered that we were going to talk about this. So what do you think he was chosen? Why Remus? So the Strix, so first off, the Strix, the Owls, this isn't just something that, that is specific to Requiem, right? In, in Greek and Roman mythology, Strixes have, our Owls have always been associated as not just things of death, but their creation myth is that a witch and her cannibalistic sons were cursed by the gods to turn into Strix. That is where they come from. That is the, the baseline for them. So when this thing comes here, and uh, to a to a dying Remus, it's almost there to. Uh, I, I would have expected it to eat him, to devour him, just waiting for him to die, or maybe even start eating him as he's alive. Maybe I just have a, a biased opinion on how vile owls can be, though. Well, biases it may be, you're not wrong in point of origin, but I think the pitched curve here is the fact that an enemy defined is an enemy defeated. I think that's the point. Remus isn't supposed to know why it chose him or made him a deal. We're not supposed to know what can uh, motivate something to join the Requiem. Remember, our own creation myths that we have out here are some pretty outlandish ones, right? I know mm-hmm. the, uh, what is it, uh, Blouse Brood had some pretty crazy ones, right? That was racy right. uh, when we went over there. And just about every bloodline has a version of, you know, maybe that went Lankia Sanctum, you know, the spear, the, the whole nine. They're all pretty crazy. So how is it they get to come back from these events? And I think the one lining theme is that a great offense is committed against known reality, right? I don't want to be in a reality abuser. Let's all do acid and now we're able to talk about reality within reality. But I mean, something that is so non-mundane and so supernal as to never happen again ever in existence. Like it's a great defiance uh, to what exists. And in this case, what gets more defined than the demigod Remus struck down by his Mm -hmm. own twin who loved him? So he was struck... When the owl approaches him, when he puts forth this bargain, he doesn't call him Remus. He calls him by his, well, son of Mars, right? That's the important bit, at least as far as this Strix is concerned. Well, is it? Right? Because that's like saying that only a son of Mars can be making deals with a Strix. We know that's not true. Right? That's simply Mm -hmm. not true. And we'll get to that. Uh, but we also know that it, 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 what they can do is they have a great usage for something that could last their energies and what they're willing to do. That they are looking for. So I don't think this is a thing that was uh, unique to Rome. I sincerely don't. I don't think Remus was so special as they leave it out here. What I do think is that they mention a couple in here that the, uh, the Egyptians or the maquette... Mm-hmm who they're leaning toward, right? The, the Maquette are considered mm-hmm. outsiders, right? They will never be Provinci. They can't, right? They're just they're from outside. You also have the Cappadocians, which are indicated, indicated that they're Nosferatu because of the death worship, religious aspects of whatnot, the hidden, that sort of thing. They don't directly say that, but again, Romans don't care because they're also uh, over there. <laughs> not, not us. Right, they're not <laughs> us. They're not Julii. Then you have the Gauls. Well, right? What were you saying? To... to uh push the that strict narrative about them not being uh you know unique forward when we talk about the the deva a little bit farther into this the origin story that's applied to them is they don't call it strix but the uh their progenitor their lilith is taken back from the owls as well 
that's another recurring thing you know farther back into the uh into the middle east even but they're still there still doing the same thing playing the same trade and so we know that in the chronicles of right of darkness we have spirits mm-hmm. not being the beneficial buddy buddy that you were used to hearing from guru and werewolf the apocalypse Mm-hmm. That's the point I'm going to drive home here. And that's what I think Requiem is living on. Remember, we're used to vampires having a separate world that's untainted by any of the other genres, right? Vampire the Masquerade, there's a dominance that they're safe. It is only us who are superior because we have a very Christian, God is on high, everything's amazing. Really unapologetic about how we push other religions to the side to justify our narrative. But they're also very good at pointing out, we didn't say they're correct. We just simply say that's how the view goes. Because it's very easy to say mm-hmm. Cain and Abel and here we are. Now, this is saying well, we have Remus and Romulus, as you pointed out, DJ. Similar story, but Remus and Romulus would be before Christ. Mm-hmm. There ain't going to be a Cain and Abel, right? Or would there be before? Or would they be around the same time? Is it possible that there was some grand event that caused this rift between two great brothers, right? Or family members that maybe had a decisive victory or what have you. Or a really good storyteller. We'll, we'll never know. But the point is, when you get to the Strix here, and you try to define the Strix, you're doing what I like to call um, poking at the devil and trying to make it tell you why it exists. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, yeah. uh, man, I can't tell you how many times we've talked about this. I don't... When you define the monster, right? I think you said something a little about uh, in, in this vein earlier. Like, when you define what makes Michael Myers what he is or what Jason Voorhees is, you, you lose a lot of the fear and the mystique around them. So to try to pin down the Strix, you're not doing anyone any favors. This is- right? Even like, uh, as we've talked about in several previous books, you can't do that for... for uh, the the kindred. I, I think at this point we figured out there is no one origin creation myth for all kindred. There, there isn't, but we can point out there are many gods, right? And there are many god theories, and that if we peel back the onion far enough, we may find a kindred origin embedded in a lot of these, and that's what Requiem presents. Here we have another mm-hmm. one presenting another thing. Now why? Because if you can have a son of Mars in an origin, why can't you have a descendant or a servant of death? Why is death thrown out? Why is the, if the owl can be a bad omen, why couldn't it be a intelligent, cruel spirit that is absent flesh and never had it? Which is my point. And we'll, right. we'll, we'll skip to that. The Stridges never had flesh to begin with. They can only experience it through possession. Mm-hmm. And they exist for, for that, right? They want to join a body and enjoy all the pleasures they can possibly have, no matter how humiliating or brutal they are to the host that they're in. And mortals cannot sustain what they put the body through because they love pain, they love pleasure, they love destruction, they love um, mimicking birth. Uh, they would probably love to try to say that they can mimic love, but I think we can all agree those things wouldn't understand what that is. No, and definitely not. But it doesn't say that they're bestial, right? A cruel intelligence, enough to say, I got an idea. Hey, Remus, what if I told you you can come back? It's just gonna come at a cost. Right. And to that end, as uh, Corpulo points out, that is the origin story. They get to come back, but it's the descendants that fill Rome, right? The Roman kindred are different than these these, uh, uh, vampires from Gaul. Um, Egypt or the Cappadocians, they're different. They don't hold any weight to where those guys come from and what they're about, focusing just on Remus, which is the important part. 
And why that's even more interesting is because we begin to see the powder cave that kind of draw to themselves. Because as Rome is being built up and you're inviting all these others in who have a different idea, if I know your origin story is a little far-fetched, like I'm coming in and, oh yeah, Rome's great, you guys can't be defeated. We heard Bob a few moments ago, oh my god, is he full of pride for Rome. So annoying. I want that on purpose. You need to have that feel because for you to truly appreciate Rome, that Julii pop that they put on it, we're only as great as we're inflated to be, as you have no power to tell us otherwise. And that's what they do. So when you walk in looking up going, but I came from Egypt and I know we're older and more ancient and yet I am a vampire. That's all you are is a vampire. Yeah, but we, you know, we have the origin of this. You mean the Strix? It's just a spirit. You made a deal with a spirit and it's gone bad. That's all? Don't you kill that one. What Roman soldiers kill yeah. that one. Away with them. How dare you denigrate us and make us seem fools. But fools they were, were they not? Be the judge. Right. Right? Well, he was. He was certainly uh, described as being a fool later, right? Because his uh, his first child, right, Julius, uh, well, the man who would become known as the cynics, right, the Paulus old man. Julius. Yep. He uh, he. In these depravities that the the Strix were were perpetrating with with their own family, right? So keep in mind these Julii. They didn't. Uh, their masquerade wasn't always just uh, them. Uh, being unknown as undead by the people, they would still be with their family. They would be the uh, what we know as uh, lairs, right? The household spirits, either something worshipped or almost like a family ghost that had to be appeased. And it was their family that the Strix were possessing and and uh, going through this debauchery with. And Senex, the old man, finally said, "Enough is enough." They revolted. Right to take that back, and everything we've talked about so far about them not having the same morality they did, it should speak volumes that what the Strix were doing were so like unethical to them that they had to throw them off. That is kind of interesting, right? Because what would even offend a vampire if if Romans are barely affected by anything because they don't work on our moral structure for a monster to be afraid of another monster or at least even take offense to another monster? That's uh, that's pretty potent. Well, one of the one of the things on there that I, I like to to dance with a little bit is that when we mentioned the Julii, they, the masquerade was invented by Remus. It simply was. Right? It's an invention mm-hmm. of the Julii, as they say. Now, why? Because he knew his brother ruled up top. And I would like to think that the choice he made to be what he is and the price that it came with, he wanted to spare his brother that. He was struck down, but as we pointed out, he acted a fool. He had reason to see, all right, I'm laying in this field, struck down, food for the vultures, and this owl spirit came here to offer me a chance, and yes, I want a chance. Because remember that theory, that if he was so great to be laid low, and he's the son of Mars... Oh, the pride, right? I'm left out here to rot and slowly die, not even a clean death. But what if I had a chance to come back? That's different. But when he comes back, what does he see? A city prospering. A city under Romulus that's actually doing well, except for the fact that he's a bit of a tyrant. Romulus unchecked is a bad seed indeed, apparently. And the three tribes that were there were not necessarily happy with him at first. And, in fact, later on, it becomes a suspect. What happens to Romulus? Not really certain. One of the acting theories is that some the actual citizens of Rome got together and did a little back-alley deal, i.e. Mm. pulled his demigod ass outside, stabbed him eight ways from Sunday, chopped him up, and uh, that was that. 
right? I think even so far to say some story was like they, they ate him. And I was like, that's, mm-hmm. ex- that, that's extreme, right? But would make sense, right? Steal some of that god power maybe. Or maybe you wanted to hide it from the gods, believing that if he's digested, well, I guess you can't ask him anything, right? But there's this whole process that if I eat of someone and their spirit now dwells with me, eh, kind of a bad idea. <laughs> but I, I didn't see morality being at the top for those who want to take someone outside and chop them up. Right. However, Remus knows that that kind of fate is going to be destined for his brother or can see it coming. Doesn't want the same mistake. It's a lot of people. It's more people than those two had ever seen in one place, gathering the tribes together, building up these cities, and it's only coming together and getting even bigger. And so he decides, yeah, we're going to live underground in a necropolis is where we're going to go. But he had help with that decision. Right? Because the Strixes, the, the Striges, excuse me, or the Strixes, we'll call them, they had a pact that they made with Remus that he was following, and he had to. One of them was he had to dig underground. Right? He had to dig these weird tombs underground that started with the Etruscan kings that uh, uh, Romulus was using, and they grew from there. Dig them into caves, into the hills, and whatnot, making these, these places and uh, to put their necropoli that they could exist below. And it's the kingdom of Remus as he saw it. However, at the same time, the Stridges saw it as a chance to play with the corpses that get interred there. Right. So if you're the Julii, as Brennan said, and they have a different idea of the masquerade, where the maquette in Egypt said to keep our very existence hidden away from the human mind, no humans can know we exist at all, they said, uh, we'll simply disguise our nature. Right, we'll move among the living. Uh, we'll move, uh, move among the living, uh, the living, faking life. Yes, we're still alive. You won't be here when you decide that I am too old and need to be done away with. You're wise to keep your mouth shut if you realize I haven't aged a single moon cycle. Don't ask. And it's probably yeah. held very good in the house of the Julii. Why would you? And then to the children, yes, I'm your weird aunt or uncle who's still around. You remember I was always here, but of course you will. And you're going to be a teenager and then an adult and then have a family. And I may bring you in to what we are. I may let you go. It just depends on what goes on. And that's sort of the effect of that. And that's why that masquerade was important for them. But even their symbol, man, of the Julii is the is the she-wolf and the twins. Mm-hmm. That coin. Oh, it's a badass symbol for a clan. I think it's fantastic, but I wanted to I wanted to say something. I'm not done with the strigs, the strigs, yeah, the striges. The str- what are we saying? We're calling them. It's it's str. We'll call Just call them like. strix. Okay. So the strix. Damn you, Brentshard. You had a feeling about them, a strong one. What was that? So uh, the strix. The uh, oh yeah, I'm. I remember things. I remember discussions we've had. There's a very important detail that's kind of tucked in the back when we're talking about the strix, right? Uh, this is in the storyteller section where we're actually, you know, talking about the Strix. There, uh... The truth of the matter is, there was no... That that Corbulo had a, had a great epilon, right? But he took a lot of a lot of liberties with it. Um, as you could probably tell, as the only witness to it would have been Remus, right? The Strix wasn't there to make a deal. He didn't prolong Remus's life. What he was there is he was... He was there to do what we've exactly said the Strix want to do. He took Remus's corpse, and it was from that Strix that the rest of the Julii descend. So what we have here is that there's a there's a fact, right? Simple as that. That uh, possession's a thing, 
right? That's that's what they do. And and this thing lied, right? It's easy for Capullo to understand that that a Strix in a body might be imperceptible to anyone else, but the Julii in their arrogance can't bring themselves to admit they were bested by anything. In particular, if we tell you your founder was but a tool. Mm And what happened? So the truth would be, Remus was done dirty, laid in the ground, but was undergoing his requiem process. And before he could do anything, the Strix inhabited him. Now, why do we know that? When you read about the Strix, it talks about that very thing. There's, it's what they love to do. That the human flesh is poor housing. But, oh man, Kindred's great. And when they get into that one, it goes forever. They can go until they're, they're stopped. It's that simple. They could do so much more. And that's exactly... What they were doing with Remus, and most important, it uses Remus to get a hold of uh, his descendant, right? And it founds the Senex uh, in, in, the, in the process of it, and goes through this whole political staging ground of developing these rules. Where they're just simply saying, hey, here's what goes on. You're digging the necropoli, and we demand our pound of flesh. We want our circus of wars. We want people to be torn apart, bloodied. We want... Uh, you know, whatever horrific blood things that can happen, happen. We also want vessels. We want you to bring us descendants of yours and bring them here for us to play with. Yeah, we want to play in their blood. We want to do things, you know. Let's do that. That's what we want. You go do that. And he was like, yeah, nah. Nah. Like, you know, it was one thing we're digging in the ground so you can mess with the dead already and so be it. They're there and price paid. Then it's we gotta have some blood dis- we got an arena we got stuff that we could do we had ways to work this out but now now you want us to bring our descendants living to you to tear apart and have and make deals with and we're just gonna sit here I can't do that now why can't you do that because we're an embodiment government of vampires looking at this going um how long are we gonna be shackled I mean we do the slaving right we're mm-hmm. the slavers why are we the ones in chains you almost make the dead you this make the streak sound like deadites right from like the evil dead where they just start like animate the dead corpse ha 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 uh, there I go they got you I don't I don't make them deadites but I will tell you right now I can easily see that's that that's what I'm saying I didn't even think about it uh, but, but you gotta understand too even like the deadites why and we, we don't really know other than evil doesn't need it a doesn't. reason, right? In that regard, and we can easily discount it. Um, and you have to know Sam Raimi and all that to kind of get behind that. But, you know, they're, they're demons. They're right, but that's what makes them scary is because you don't know how much of a capricious nature they have. And to them, it might just not even be evil. It's just LOL to them, right? Much the same way Faye kind of just, you never know the will of all those creatures. And that's what makes it scary to know that such cruel things do exist out there. But since we went through that and we talk about, listen, we went over the origins of of, uh, of Rome here for vampire right. perspective. We hit on the Julii and where they're formed from. We talked about Remus and his descendant. Talked about the pact made, mm-hmm. right, that gets betrayed. Why the Strix want to kill the Julii is all because they won't honor the deal anymore. They tell them to pound sand. All our descendants oppose you. We're going to kill you. We now call you Nemesis. Mm-hmm. Right, the Greek spelling or nemesis or whatever—that's that's what you are, and we know you as that, and you are beneath us. They literally, the Julii, stuff them beneath us. We'll have others kill you. You're voted out. The Senate no longer needs you. Thank you, and they shove them to the side. That's that. But speaking of things like that, um, I want to outline the fact that in this book, it is all about the governing of that story. 
right? Because we know this is this comes to an end here. And we're going to get into some of those elements now. Um, we left a lot open for you to dive into because this book, like I said, is simply, like I said in the beginning, is simply something you got to get your, your hooks into because there's a ton of material to go into. When you can break everything down from war to war, uh, from moment in timeline to moment in timeline and run an entire story over an overarching campaign of Rome, they built your game for you told in Rome. You just got to assign the players and join. And it's, I'm telling you, it does itself. And between that and Google, you're going to be all set for how to have a romping good time, right? But that's why I want to pause that there. Now I want to come into uh, a different element, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get that to the next podcast, actually. Um, I just saw the time. Um, we're definitely there at that mark. Um, this is part two of Requiem for Rome. Um, we're going to finish it out with part three that you're going to hear later. And uh, thanks, Brennan. Thank you, DJ. I appreciate you coming along yep. on this. Yep. Thank you, guys. And, uh, folks, part three starts soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 Years of VTM, at our email, info at 25YearsVTM.com, on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25YearsVTM, or on our website, www.25YearsVTM.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade.